The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Please pray with me. Father, we want the corporate prayer that we just offered to you in worship to show us Christ through your word to be true today. And this text calls us to ask you for something even more. Would we see Christ through your word? And would we go out from this place and keep looking at the scriptures and have it be further confirmed that you are the Christ, that you are the great one? Would this not be the only time this week? But would this be the first day of the week where we kick things off and you meet us in your word? Would your word be opened today by your spirit? Would it be argued from, presented in an orderly way? Would it be laid out before your people? And would they be called to it rightly? Would you be at work in our hearts? Thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by talking to the children for a second. You know, there's some tricky things about being a kid. You're not in charge and things like that. But there's some cool things too. There's some cool things about being a kid. And those of us that aren't kids anymore realize that. And sometimes we're like, man, wasn't it great to be a kid? Here's what I'm talking about. Adults sit in a restaurant and wait for their food. What do kids do? They get to play on the little booklet thing and fill out the puzzles and do stuff. Parents drive on the road trip. Kids are like, fun book, reading books, watching videos. There's some cool things about being a kid. Well, I was thinking about puzzles that I enjoyed as a kid. Mazes, ooh, watch out, dead end there, er, go over here. I was thinking about word finds, columns, looking, oh, it's backwards. And I was thinking about another puzzle that I enjoyed as a kid, where on the same page there were two pictures Almost identical, but the instructions said, find the ten differences. So you're carefully examining this raccoon up in a tree with a baseball hat. And in this tree, he has a dove on his head. Oh, difference number one. I don't know how great I was at those puzzles, but they were fun. Now, why in the world would I start there? Well, Luke is a phenomenal historian, and he has arranged an orderly account for us. And he uses that same teaching technique. Oftentimes he'll place two pictures right up next to each other and they're slightly different. And he wants us to look at them very carefully and figure out what's different and why is it different? And then like, oh, Eureka, I found it. You see, we saw this at the park this past Wednesday. Pastor Brian Lichty opened up for us uh, in part One of Jesus' parables, Jesus did this. He talked about two men, and we're supposed to look at both of them, who went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And Jesus, in his parable, opens up their hearts, and we compare them, and we're like, whoa, I don't want to have this heart. God, give me this heart. Comparing two pictures. But it's not just in parables and stories. It's in historical accounts that Luke stitches together. For example, our middle schoolers at camp spend time looking at two rich men. One was the rich ruler who said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
That should be our first clue that, hmm, something inherent, hmm, you need to receive it. But anyway, uh, okay, we'll, we'll move on and to look at another rich man who we normally think of as a tree climber, Zacchaeus. He was a very rich man. Both of these pictures are put up there so that we'll look at them because we see in the end, one of them goes away sad that he has to get rid of his stuff. The other one is rejoicing that he gets to give away his stuff and he gets the treasure who is Christ. Two pictures that show us our hearts. Now, if you haven't guessed yet, our text today is two pictures. It's not a parable. It's not a historical account of two people. It's a historical account of two cities. And what we're supposed to do is, just like that children's puzzle, look at both of them and see what's different. What did the designer of this historical account, the arranger of this orderly account, want us to see? That's our mission. So our outline is very simple. But because we're in an ongoing journey through Acts, we have to add something to the outline. We're not just going to look at the two cities. The first thing that we're going to do is kind of get back into the story. If you have a favorite TV program, often at the beginning, they'll be like, scenes from last time. We're going to try to catch up to figure out where were we in this, where are we in this ongoing historical account? And then we're going to look at city number one and city number two. And kids, if you want to follow along, I'd encourage everybody to keep your Bibles open. I'm going to try to talk about the text over and over and over again. Point to words in the text. You can follow along with your finger. Oh, he just said that. Oh, he just said that. And I'm going to say five things about each city. Okay, five things about each city. We're going to compare those two and see which ones are the same and which ones are different. But before we get there, let's get back into Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip back just a little bit to Acts 16. That's going to really help us get back into the story. Acts 16 verse 6 starts with opposition, and it's from a very strange place. The Holy Spirit was doing it. Remember? Pastor Stephen opened this chapter for us last week. The word, they wanted, they tried to speak the word in Asia, but they were what? Forbidden by the Spirit. And then when they attempted to go to Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That just seems so strange. I want to go speak the gospel over there. And the Holy Spirit's like, eh, eh, because he had better plans. A different place. So they were probably perplexed and they were hanging out in Troas, and Jesus sent a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. I love the way that the missionary band responded. They were not like, maybe their car broke down. You know, maybe they have a plumbing issue. No, immediately they, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That was the greatest help that they needed. Well, why am I going there? What I didn't realize, I sort of thought, well, you know what? Once we've been to Philippi and Jesus did so many amazing things in Philippi, they're probably done with that missionary call, right? That was until I looked at the map. You see, this is today the ongoing ministry, the rest of the ministry in Macedonia. Now, I was talking to the staff this week, and I was sort of saying, well, it's kind of like my arm, and the Aegean Sea is what we call it today, and, and like Philippi is up here, and then these two A names that Scott did a great job pronouncing, and then kind of over at the elbow, and they kind of smiled at me, and I think I caught the clue, and so I think I better actually show you a real map. So you can look up on the screen. 
This is a picture of Paul's second missionary journey. And notice the key at the bottom. This is a massive journey. And we're going to zoom in on the upper corner. So that's in the yellow box. And I just want you to look at the region of Macedonia. In our day and age, it's a small little area. It's massive back then. And the next slide that you should see is Philippi highlighted right there. That's the, the whole city. It's up here on my arm. The whole city that, uh, <laughs> that was open to us last week by Stephen. And then we read about four cities in the region of Macedonia. You can look at 17 verse 1 with me. Now they passed through Amphilius and Apollena. Notice they passed through. Earlier in chapter 16, it says they went around a city, so we don't know what happened. Maybe, my guess is because it didn't say they went around it, then they passed right through it. They probably preached the gospel there. But you see, so much happened through the church, just like so much that Jesus is doing through the church today. Luke wants us to focus in, not on those two cities, but on two other cities. So the final slide will show you the journey to Berea and Thessalonica. 35, 40 miles in between each city, give or take. And we're going to look at those two and compare them. So please look at me. Look with me at the second half. Don't look at me. Look at the word. Oh, my word. I better pause and take a drink um, of water. Uh, (laughs) Here we go. Please look at Thessalonica with me. <laughs> Chapter 1, second half of the verse. And they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now this is very significant because if you remember at Philippi, there wasn't one. Where did they go to preach the gospel? They went outside the gate. And when they were outside the gate, they went to the river and they found a place of prayer. But here, there was a Jewish synagogue. So if we're Looking at our five things, number one is, and Paul went in, as was his custom, went into where? Into the synagogue. And on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's three consecutive weeks. There may have been other ministry, but what Luke wants to draw our attention to is the synagogue, the Sabbath, the Jewish people, and their response to this message. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. This word reasoned, is a, seems to be a favorite term for Luke. It starts here and happens 10 other times in the book of Acts, and most of them talk about the ministry that Paul had in the synagogue, okay? But I think because this is the first time it shows up, he wants to drill down into it. He really wants us to understand what that means. It's not a throwaway term. If you're familiar with Paul, if you've read some of his letters, it's this stitching together of a really well-crafted argument, That he reasoned well and it fit together. How did he do that? He did that in two ways. By explaining and proving. Explaining and proving. Explaining means opening up. I love that word. He was opening up what? The scriptures. God's intended message from the scriptures. When you listen to teachers, is that what they're doing? 
Those are the teachers we must listen to, those that open up the scriptures and explain it. What does this book say? Not do what, not what do I think. What does this book say? And proving to them. And this word could also mean commending. It means this truth means something. You need to do something about it. That's what he was doing. Explaining and proving. And what was the content? You can look at a perfect example of this in Acts 13, starting at verse 13. He does this exact same He fleshes it all out. I'm not going to go there. But you can look later at what he does and how he puts his argument together. But this is sort of the outline. The two main things that he wanted to point out is that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying that Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So let's pause there for a second and dig into that. The first thing that we need to understand is He was proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Notice the word the. He is speaking to a Jewish audience who had their own ideas about what the Messiah was. They were looking for a Rome conquering, oppressor overturning, glorious king riding in to crush the enemies and set them up on top. Is that what Jesus came to do? He will. He absolutely will return. And every knee will bow. But that's not his first coming. His first coming was a humble king and he was to suffer. This word necessary, if you were touching that word, it would almost have electric shock that would ripple through Luke and Acts. Because this word necessary has the idea behind it of divine necessity. This must happen. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus often says, I must suffer. The Son of Man must be handed over. This must take place. I must go to Jerusalem. And so, right in line with that beautiful word, Paul says it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. With such an emphasis, though, it would, it would seem like we could just move past it, but we must know for our own selves why is it necessary for the Christ to suffer? Why is it necessary for God to take on flesh, come to the earth and suffer and die and rise again? Substitution and union. Two glorious truths. Listen to this scripture. He, that is God the Father, made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus. Notice the intention. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That was why it was necessary for him to suffer. So that in him, as we're united to Jesus Christ by faith, you're my only hope, Christ. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I had a brother uh, point out Isaiah 6 yesterday, just in a passing conversation, and how Isaiah walked into the throne room of God and was undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. 
he had a very grave problem, as do all of us. We need an advocate. We need a righteous one to take all of that so that we can be with God, so that we can be united to him. It is necessary that the Christ should suffer. So first, he's creating this category for them. He's, in a sense, turning their whole religious world upside down and saying, the Christ that you thought he was was wrong. Let me tell you about the real Christ, God's intention from the scriptures. That Christ must suffer and this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He was creating a category and filling the category with Jesus. Number one, Paul went into the synagogue. Number two, he reasoned from the scriptures. Number three, the positive response. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, we need to stop and see one more thing. Remember, we sang, show us Christ. Well, you need to know that Paul is moving right in line with Jesus Christ. In fact, the overlaps, Luke wants us to see this, the overlaps with what just happened, uh, both in their response and what was just preached, is almost identical to what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. In fact, after his resurrection, some of the first words he said, Jesus says Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Almost identical words. Jesus is creating the category for these two men who dearly loved him, but were confused about his suffering. He says, wasn't that necessary? Same word. Then Jesus used the scriptures to fulfill, to fill in his category. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They're walking right in line with Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. Hint, Jesus saved these witnesses. He's sending out and empowering these witnesses. Jesus is building his church here. And we can even look at the grammar in this response. And some of them were persuaded. We could easily think that was a human thing. Well, I've read Romans. He's pretty persuasive. Uh, But no, this is a divine passive. This word persuaded has an element of belief in it. God did this. And it's very clear with joined. It's not like they in their own human effort. Well, I guess I'm going with these guys. Again, God, a divine passive, joined them to, knit them to, grafted them into the people of the disciples. They joined Paul and Silas by the great grafting of Jesus, as did a great many number of devout Greeks and a few leading women. Now, you need to notice one other thing in that verse. Notice the repetition of the numbers. Some of them, it starts with some of them. That might be a really good thing to hold on to as we compare it to the second city. Some of them. As well as a great many of devout Greeks. That term great many could also mean great multitude. So what you need to understand is the Jewish synagogue was seeing the people that were maybe closest to them, that were most sympathetic to the Lord God Yahweh, move in droves, a great multitude, massing up of all these terms, a great multitude move and be joined by God to the true Christ, the true Messiah. And not a few leading women. That means quite a few. So what was the response? This is the fourth thing, the response, the negative response. And this is where most of the emphasis in the city goes. 
the negative response, but the Jews were jealous. Now we know for sure that this is not all the Jews because some of the Jews joined with them. Some of them were opened by God to move with them. But probably, as the ESV study note says, some of them were jealous. Where do the fights and quarrels come from among you? From your passions. So these passions move them in a very bad direction. Taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. This is very important, again, as we compare it to the next story, the next historical account in Berea. They went to some of the wicked men who were against God and who were among the rabble. This means lower class. Now, Luke loves the lower class. He loves to lift up the poor. He's using it here for a different reason. This rabble, this group, they went low. We need to see that they went low. Joined themselves with low people, wicked people, and set the city in an uproar. They went low. Why did they go low? We're going to see it in just a second, but let me just ask you a question. How do you respond to God's word? Are there truths right now that you're like, how do people go low in our day and gather a mob? Well, I'm going to go preach to the courts of Twitter. If the Bible says that, I'm going to go large. How does your heart respond to the word? How does your heart respond to the word? As we read the rest of this section, quite a few verses, I want you to notice something else. We'll return to that question. I want you to notice something else. Look at the spillover. As the apostles are being attacked, almost like um, a football game where the player on the field gets tackled and they're tackled near the sidelines and it like they crush a bunch of the other players and coaches and the poor little dude with his hat backwards who's carrying the balls around. Uh, When that happens, notice who else is attacked. Notice who else feels some of that, uh, not, not necessarily direct, but also receives the spillover of their attack. And attack the house of Jason. Who is Jason? Jason is probably their host. We'll see in just a second. And he's probably the one welcoming them in, maybe the, the focal point for the church. They attack the house of Jason. This is not Paul and Silas. This is a guy who's, in a sense, on the sidelines, but very much a part of the team, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. That is Paul and Silas. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. So now it's not just his house being attacked. He is, himself is physically being removed and dragged. Nobody likes to be dragged to this, before the city authorities shouting, these men, right there he's talking about Paul and Silas, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all, that word all is very important. It's not just these two men, but it's Jason and the brothers. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. They are going way up the scale. In, in this day and age in Rome, this is a very serious thing to say, a very serious thing to accuse them of. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So there's even shame over these things. And they're like, we're disturbed at what you're doing. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what did they do? Maybe like uh, somebody's brought to court and then released on bail, but slightly different. They gave them some money. If you keep setting the city in an uproar, we're going to keep your money. We're going to take this significant amount of money from you. And if you don't stop it, this is gone. That's quite a bit of spillover onto new converts. Notice, as you think ahead in church history, God sustained them. There are two letters written to this church, so it's not like, whoa, persecution came too quick to this group. Jesus couldn't handle it. No. They were sustained even in these very difficult things. You need to know, some of you may be experiencing spillover. Do you realize that behind maybe the leaders that you're connected to that are maybe under oppression, there's a Savior And his oppression keeps spilling down. May he give you grace. He can sustain you just as he did them. Let's look at one of the things that they had to say. I'm so thankful for the worship and the prayers this morning and how they really lifted our attention to Jesus and his kingship. We don't have time to look at everything, but I really want to focus in on these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. There's a lot of truth in those words, and a lot of misunderstanding. I think the first thing that we need to see, because it helps us again see Jesus, is the word these men. These men are doing all these bad things, but you have to realize we know the whole story. We don't know Silas's story necessarily, but we know Paul's. Compare Paul's story to what happened here. They attacked the church by attacking Jason's house. What did Paul do? He was ravaging the church. These people dragged Jason and the brothers away. What did Paul do? He went from house to house and dragged away men and women to the authorities. He was vehemently attacking the church. So are they. So is it these men that are turning the world upside down? No, it's Jesus. Jesus knocked that man off of his horse. He taught him these truths to present and open up. He sent him out by his spirit to proclaim to proclaim these things. These people are mouthpieces through which God is overturning the world. You can be mouthpiece through which God overturns the world. That's our mission, believers. That's our mission. Jesus is building his church. But notice, they have turned the world upside down. The gospel is still doing that today in a lot of different ways. It was certainly flipping their religious order. These Jews, however, it it goes deeper. It goes to the heart. These Jews wanted something. They wanted popularity. They saw their popularity chances flying away, just like in Philippi. They saw their economic realities fly away because of the power of Christ. And they were angry, and they responded in the flesh and said, we must control this. We want something else. We don't want God as our king. We want to be king. Does that bear any resemblance to your heart? I want something else. I don't want this truth. That's a scary place to be. This is not presented in a beautiful way. 
This is presented as going low, joining themselves with wicked people, opposing God. Don't be on that side. We also need to know, believers, that Jesus never stops overturning our world. He never stops desiring to flip our world the right side up. It's not just once at conversion our world gets turned upside down. It's continual and it's wonderful. It's for our good. This week the Lord God was pressing words from Philippians into me and and saying, look at Paul. Look at his heart to live as Christ and to die as gain. How does that match up with your world? What are you treasuring? What do you love? God by his spirit was after my heart. Where is he after yours? Lean in. Ask for grace. Humble yourself before him. That's what he does. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And let me just inform you, that hasn't happened yet. So he's coming after us for our good. Welcome it. Welcome it. The final and fifth thing the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay? Let's look at picture number two. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. If you've been listening to the first part, is that the same? The answer is yes. Good work. Yes. They went into the Jewish synagogue. In fact, you can find the word went in here and you can find the word went into in verse 4. It's exactly the same. Oh, these are two pictures. Next, what did Paul do? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Look carefully. Is that in there? Yes, it is. Well, it's not in there written down. But that's what happened. See, biblical authors will sometimes leave things out that they assume. How do we know that? Well, you can look at 11 and 12 and see that there was word that they were wrestling with. The very same thing happened. It doesn't need to be repeated because it is exactly what happened. It is exactly how it should have happened. We should evangelize with the word, opening up the word. We should be praying, God, give me people with whom I can study the word. That I can open it up with them. You can open up to me. We can open up together. We can rejoice in your truth together. That's what happened. The third thing was the positive response. There is positive response in both places, but this positive response is off the charts. This is probably the main thing Luke has for us today, so pay very close attention. If your Bibles are not open, open them to chapter 17, verse 11, and look with me. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That is weird. The word noble means noblemen. Oh, I didn't know all the people in Thessalonians were like on their social ranks way up here, almost like kings and rulers and governors. That's not what he's saying. As the Jews in Berea went low and joined themselves in wicked ways to pursue the flesh, the Jews in Thessalonica did something completely different. They went high. They followed the Spirit in His desire for His Word. Rather than resisting it and going low, they went high. 
They did exactly what we should do. They received the word with all eagerness. They were on the edge of their seats. Don't let it be lost on you. These truths were turning their world upside down. And yet they sat there and they wanted it. God, have mercy. This was completely flipping their world upside down. This was causing the loss of things for them. A whole new way of living, a whole new way of believing, a whole new way of anticipating things, whole new hopes. They received the word with all eagerness. And then it says, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This word examining is used throughout Luke to, be, to describe judges who have cases brought before them. So, for example, this is the word that Pilate used to the Jewish leaders and said, you accuse Jesus of this, but I have examined him, or after examining him, I have found him guilty of zero, nothing, none of the charges that you've brought him. I have looked at your case, I have carefully considered it, and I reject it. That is what we're supposed to do with the teaching from the Scriptures. We are to examine it. Notice it says daily. This is not just in the moment. This is an ongoing process. Daily to see if these things were so. If I could rivet your attention on something, it would be on this. To see if these things were so. They are comparing the teaching of Paul from the scriptures to the scriptures to make sure it was so. You cannot just have a Bible teacher who speaks from the Scriptures and opens up the Scriptures. You must verify that it is accurate by the Scriptures. We oftentimes talk about our favorite teachers. Our favorite teacher should be God. Our favorite people to learn from should be Luke and Paul the authoritative apostles and their word. And absolutely, I am all about having teachers that open up the scriptures and help us see them and guide us and equip us for that. But this is the source. I don't know how aware you are of our day and age, but coalitions that were so united now have teachers that are teaching different things. What are we to do? Go here. Go here. You see, oftentimes we judge whether something is so by, oh, that sounds right. Or even more scary, but very prevalent, that feels right. I just think that feels right. Well, it can feel right, but it's got to be here. And this we can God, say, God, line up my feelings to this because this is the truth. Sometimes we say, well, it certainly sounds like what everybody else is saying. Well, do you realize sometimes how unpopular this is? It's got to be here. Our teachers can be mistaken. Our teachers can lead people astray. In a few weeks, We'll get to the Ephesian church. 
where it's, it will say that teachers rise up from among you? From among the church that Paul planted? And teaching corrupted doctrines? How does the church guard itself against that? By going here. I am so burdened for us that we would be discerning people that go to the scriptures to see if it's so. And I I just want to let you in on a fringe benefit because we always like fringe benefits. And with this deal, you get to further confirm and further rejoice in the truths of these words by looking at the scriptures. It's confirmed. It's strengthened. It goes deeper. This should not be your sole source of feeding. We need to read the word. We're becoming a more and more biblically illiterate church. We need to read the word. We need to study the word. We need to follow the example of our women's ministry that are going hard after the scriptures. More and more of our men need to get in this book and study and dig in and know what it says. And we need to examine it. We need to examine our teaching. Not just because this teacher has been so reliable in the past. Does the word of God confirm it? We need to see if it falls in line with the wider biblical teaching. Is this explanation correct? And is the call from which this word is being applied, is it accurate? Is it in line? Notice what happened. Therefore, many of them believed. Many of them, some in the last city, many in this city. And not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So this was a very positive result. But, notice there's the but again. Here's the negative result. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. They traveled 50 miles by road to further agitate and stir up the crowd. According to their meaning, who is turning the world upside down? The fifth thing, very similar to before, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. So again, immediately sent off. But Silas and Timothy remained there probably to strengthen these new converts. They kept pouring into them. They kept opening up the scriptures. They kept looking at the scriptures with them to see if these things were so. Paul and Timothy remained there. Those that conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. That is a lot of miles. By land or by sea, we're not sure. And after receiving a command, that is those conducting people, those guides, received this command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul shows up in Athens, which, Lord willing, Sam Crabtree will open up to us next week. You can pray for him. When he got there, he was like, send an ASAP message right away. I need those guys. Ministry is critical here. So those are the two cities. I hope it becomes clear to you what are the differences? What are the focuses We should look very carefully at how we are allowing God's word to affect our lives. Are we willing to let it turn our world upside down? That is one of the primary aims of this text. 
Where does God desire to do that for you this week? Where has he been after you for a while? Don't resist him. Move in the way of his word. Secondly, how are you receiving it? Is it eagerly and are you regularly examining it? Are you thinking through what you've been taught? Are you digging deeper, further? Oh, really? All of these things, just as this gospel ministry that we saw that Jesus was underneath it, all of these things need to be done through us by Christ. I'm going to give you a moment to pray with me in just a second. And then we're going to sing. It's not about us. It's Christ through us. The scripture says, He is the one who works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So would you look at the word with me this morning and say, God, work this reality that your spirit is prompting me that it might be pleasing in your sight. I will step forward and I need you to show up in power. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that Luke arranged it for us. Would you please give us grace to look to you in humility, asking you to work its truths in our hearts. God, give freedom in this place. Would you work in us to will and to work, to desire and to do your good pleasure? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.